points in the health system. Welcome to the Tippis Podcast. The Tippis it has been known for some time that the Sahara Desert was not always the dry, hot place we know today. Between 10,000 years ago and 5,000 years ago, Sahara was green, covered with vegetation. The transition from desert to green region happened rather quickly, and so did the reversing of Sahara to desert 5,000 years ago. What triggered these changes? What made the landscape of northern Africa tip from desert to bushy landscape and then, 5,000 years later, tip back to being bare sun-baked ground? Professor Paul Valdes from Physical Geography at Bristol University, Great Britain, you have tried to solve this puzzle using computer models, climate models, and I know it's quite a challenge and I would really like you to explain what you think happened back then. But first, would you tell me in more detail, what was this green Sahara like? And how do we know that it was once green? Well, it was quite an amazing time period that's so different from today. And there's a lot of evidence now from the geological record. If you go there, you'll find, for instance, fish remains right in the middle of what is now a really uh, severe desert. And so that tells you immediately, not only was there a lot of water there, but it was, must have been there for a long time in order for there to be fish around. There are also other things, like there are cave paintings which show that it was uh, very much more vegetated there. And there are pollen records to show that, the, the, that there was grass there and, and the plants were growing. And I think the only thing Thing, you know, it's often called very quickly a green Sahara, and that might paint a mental picture of lovely lush lawns or something like that. And it wasn't quite that wet. Um, you, it was still sort of there were trees there, but it was still sort of a, a, a think of a, a sort of African savanna type uh, vegetation uh, covering very, virtually all of the um, what we know as the Sahara today. This was an uh, an environment rich with animals and. Uh, Human hunters and stuff like that? It, it appears so, and certainly the cave paintings show um, uh, the humans uh, hunting animals uh, there. So it was a very different picture. Mm-hmm. How quickly did Northern Africa turn green, like 10,000 years ago, and was it equally fast when it revolved once again and became desert? So it, it, the transition to uh, uh, the Green Sahara was uh, fairly rapid, but um, it, it's really the end of the, this Green Sahara period, which was the dramatic thing. It does seem to have changed very rapidly. The precipitation uh, weakened and, and the vegetation disappeared and it became the desert that we were today. So it was a fairly rapid uh, transition. Around about 5,000, 5,500 years ago, there seems to have been this change. So it changed back in years or in hundreds of years? Probably more like a hun- hundreds of years uh, sort of thing. At w- one point we did think it was very rapid. Uh, I think that's um, now um, seems to um, have changed a little bit. But nonetheless, it was still a very, very abrupt uh, change when we weren't aware of any other, th- other uh, cause of that abrupt ch- um, change, in, in, uh, really. I know you've uh, tried to find out, using climate models, what went on uh, in the past 10, 15,000 years in Sahara, uh, climate-wise. Would you please tell me, what, what, what's, been, what's the challenge of doing that? Well, it turns out it's a really sort of uh, subtle balance to get right. And some, some simple models could show the basic idea of um, the uh, Sahara getting greener and then uh, disappearing. Um, but when we put it into the sort of full complexity models, the models that are used to predict the future, uh, none of them were able to get the green Sahara. 
They completely failed. They, they had some increase in the uh, precipitation, but it was just not enough to maintain a, a, a uh, forested environment during uh, that time or a savanna environment during that time. And that's been a problem that's been around now for uh, almost 20 years, sort of thing, that these models have failed to reproduce uh, the Green Sahara. It's a bit worrying also, isn't it? Because, I mean, if we're nearing a transition in some area, of some region of Earth uh, right now today... We don't. We actually know them, that the models that we use to predict what's going to happen in the near future, climate-wise, they're probably not going to be able to catch it. Exactly. But the really worrying thing is that the um, the complex models just underestimate the change. So it's, this is not a, a question of saying, oh, well, well, the models are just simply wrong. It is a sense of saying that they're underestimating change. And, of course, that's a very worrying message in terms of uh, future climates uh, in any form sort of thing. Mm-hmm. They're, they're too conservative, really? Exactly. They're, 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 we, we sometimes talk about it as they're, they're built to be too stable in, in, in some senses. And so um, they might be able to get the sort of mean change reasonably well, but some abrupt changes, like we're talking about, um, they don't seem to do very well. Uh, but now you're beginning to make it work. Yeah, exactly. So we're very excited. Over the past year or two, and working with colleagues, um, Peter Hockcroft at uh, Birmingham University, um, we are beginning to uh, make progress in getting the climate models to represent this, these abrupt changes in, in the past. And it does turn out to be really quite a subtle um, uh, process. It's not, um, it's not that the models were fundamentally wrong, um, but you just got to get them exactly in the right position. And it's kind of like thinking about sort of a chair. You know, if, if you want an abrupt... Um, uh, event in the chair to fall over you've just got to get it close to that balancing point and then and then small changes will lead to these abrupt um, and rapid uh, transitions mm-hmm. you're talking about this chair because it's it, this functions like a tipping point like just like the chair it reaches a point where it goes either back or it continues to fall to the ground exactly and a sort of chair is a good a good analogy of the tipping point of of the uh, green sahara because you you start off with the chair upright and it's very stable and it sits there for a long time being just nice and green sort of thing and then and you can rock it without Exactly. Yeah, that's right. And so the sort of, and particularly from year to year, weather doesn't change it and, and it, it doesn't fall over sort of thing. Um, but then eventually, if it moves towards this uh, balance point where you always know that, you know, if you lean back on a chair, you're, you're, there's, there's a danger. And eventually you get to a point where, where it will not take anything at all to knock it over and fall it over. And once it's fallen over, it's very stable in its new state of being a, a dry desert and so again um, you, it doesn't suddenly bounce back um, it just stays there as a desert and that happened uh, as a desert yeah the chair does or the, yeah. the, uh, the, <laughs> the, area, the region does yeah so Sahara kind of falls into a green state and then falls out of it again you might say yeah, and the, uh, well, and it's, particularly it's the falling out that is the interesting thing, really. Um, what we think happened was that the, um, on very long timescales, the Earth's orbit around the sun changes, and that strengthens the um, monsoons in uh, tropical regions. Um, and um, It might be difficult to understand why the monsoons in the tropical regions should be strengthened by something that's happening to Earth around the Sun. Yeah, so we, under, we think we understand that reasonably well. What happens is that the change in the Earth's orbit around the Sun m- results in us having more um, energy from the Sun, more sunlight, uh, during uh, the summers in the Northern Hemisphere. 
And so what happens then is that the, the, because we've got more sunlight, that warms up the land more than the ocean, and that means that you get a bigger temperature difference between land and ocean, and that drives the uh, winds and makes the winds stronger that come from the ocean and go, go to the land. And those are the monsoons. And that's the monsoons. You know, the, mons- the original word of, uh, for monsoon is, is Arabic for wind, a steady wind, but then changing direction through the seasons. And so w- we know that the Earth's orbit around the sun is able to change the winds and that brings moisture, um, and that's why we often think of monsoons being wet uh, during the summer, and that's because it brings the moisture from the ocean onto the land and falls as, as, as rainfall. And so that was kind of what we think actually got the uh, Sahara green, um, was this intensification of the uh, monsoon. Um, but then what was interesting is that if it was simply just the orbit that was doing everything, then you would have expected a very smooth and gradual transition back to being a, de- a desert condition. And the, the, so the surprise was the fact that it was so, so abrupt. And what we understand about that is that we think um, the, the vegetation, the green Sahara, actually feeds back on the precipitation and actually strengthens the precipitation. So basically when it gets green, gets darker, you absorb more sunlight and that changes the uh, circulation and enhances the monsoon. So that feedback is is what triggers, um, well, first of all, gets the, the Sahara to be green. But then as it begins, then as, be, as the orbit begins to come, come back to present day, the mon- monsoon begins to weaken a little bit, um, and then the vegetation starts dying a little bit, and you get to a critical transition where suddenly the precipitation is just not enough to maintain uh, the vegetation, and it all dies. And that's the sort of pattern that we think um, happens that kind of explains this uh, phenomenon, not only of the Green Sahara, but this very abrupt and very rapid transition uh, to desert conditions that we know today. But it's interesting that the forest itself is actually, or the vegetation itself is actually, it's helping itself to more rain, you might say. Exactly, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an example of a positive feedback process. And feedbacks in the climate system are incredibly important, and, but also very impo- uh, difficult to simulate perfectly. And so that's been one of the tran- troubles about, and one of the challenges of getting uh, complex models to represent those processes is that it's a very subtle balance to get the right feedbacks and the right strength of the feedbacks. So you're fine-tuning them, looking for the thresholds that lead to these changes. Exactly, and we want to get the, those, those thresholds Right, and what often happens in the in, in the complex climate models is that they will have th- these thresholds, but if if you don't tune them the, the models correctly, they, those thresholds might be in the wrong place. They might happen too early, or or often they happen too too late. And so this is one of the values of using past climates to test and evaluate climate models is that you can actually see and test to see whether those tipping points are in the right place, whether those transitions are in the right place. And as I say, the work that we've been doing recently has, has encouraged us and says that actually, yes, we can get the models to have that uh, transition in the right uh, part of uh, sort of parameter space, part of climate space. So actually, this work is not only interesting because it's, it's interesting to know what actually happened, what, what triggered these changes in Sahara, but it's also you're also making the climate models more precise, you might say, by fine-tuning this. I mean, I would imagine that this could be used today to predict whether any 
other areas in the world are, you know, close to a threshold where it might fall into another state. What do you have any regions in mind? Black? Yeah. So, so, so you're right. Exactly. You know, this is one of the ideas behind our. Um, our, our work is that we can test and evaluate and improve the climate model predictions for the future in some senses and give us more confidence in those. And one of the big areas where this idea of a rapid and abrupt change of, of vegetation and one of the areas that we're really concerned about is, is the Amazon region. So irrespective of um, what happens in terms of uh, deforestation, we, there are real concerns that the Amazon may experience the same sort of transition that I've been talking about for the Green Sahara where um, you'll think, oh, yeah, things are going okay, you know, there might be a little bit of change, and then suddenly and relatively abrupt, abruptly we find that the uh, climate in the region becomes just too dry to maintain the um, Amazon uh, forest. And so that's sort of a big concern, if you like, that we, we, we uh, worry about in terms of future climates. But that would be because the monsoons also change, not only because of the of the orbital uh, changes uh, in the solar system, but also because of uh, more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Exactly, and and, and uh, but interestingly, although the the driver is a very different thing, the basic process is remarkably similar. That the 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 changes in in carbon dioxide concentration change the uh, temperature gradient between land. And, and ocean, and that changes the monsoon. So that's why we think we can learn lessons from the past. It's so the, the mechanism of change is not quite the same, or the trigger of change is not quite the same, but the actual physical processes that go on in the climate system are remarkably similar between um, these longer-term orbital changes and the relatively rapid uh, CO2 rise that we're seeing. You know, if we've got them, um, more confidence in our models, we, it will tell us whether um, it might be happening, and that will give us an early, early warning. And the other thing is that we're part of a big European project going on at the moment and one of the big um, activities there is working with, uh, particularly with mathematicians, to try and come up with better early warning systems for some of these big transitions in the climate system. If we can actually predict when they're going to happen, then hopefully that will give us much more motivation to do something about it. And this project you're talking about is the cheapest project? Exactly. It's a very exciting new project that is just starting off, uh, which is bringing together a whole variety of different pe uh, skills. Uh, so myself, I'm a climate modeler and particularly specialised in terms of past climates, but we've got people working on future climates, and then we've got a lot of mathematicians who are going to help us understand the patterns of changes that we're seeing and the possibility that we've got, um, uh, or possibility on, of when these transitions might happen. Tips. The TIPIS project has received funding from the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Programme under grant agreement number 820970.